Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Hi, everyone, and welcome uh, to the Spirited Advocate Podcast. We're really excited uh, for this podcast in particular because I have a longtime friend, colleague uh, that is joining us today, uh, none other then Brandy ran with IWSR. We are going to be really probing uh, what's happened to the spirits marketplace, certainly since uh, all of us have been navigating through the COVID-19 pandemic. So Brandy, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hi, how are you? Glad to be here. So for everybody uh, that may be aware, Brandy and I used to work together back, back way back in the day at Allied Demex Spirits and Wine. That company no longer exists. Yes. And then Brandy had a great, uh, certainly a great career at Allied Demex, uh, where she did brand PR and then uh, went to work for a great company, William Grant and Bacardi as well. So Brandy, tell us a little bit about yourself and IWSR. And uh, how did you get to this point today? So I have to, I have to probably thank Ali Demek and, and Chris. He's being modest, but Chris actually was my, was my boss way back when I was, I think, in my late 20s and just had joined the spirits industry. And it was pretty exciting because at the time, remember, you know, we worked with Discus because it was government affairs. And it's crazy to think, you know, fast forward almost 20 years later, you know, here we are, which is great. Yeah. So ironic. I... I, it's it's crazy, and I think you know we'll probably talk about this. But to think about how much this industry has changed in the last twenty years to me is astounding. And I'm kind of grateful to have lived through uh, and be living through a lot of these really transformative changes that are going on. It's it's quite exciting. While it's challenging, there's there's certainly a lot of opportunities. Um, but to answer your question, so I started off in the internet space back when the internet was sort of just happening and I'm dating myself because this was, uh, you know, back in the day. Um, and I ended up pivoting over after a couple of years of, you know, failed IPOs and all this fun stuff that, that happened, uh, ended up over in the uh, beverage alcohol space and spent a, a majority of my career working more on the supplier side of the business. And in the last five years, I've been almost at IWSR, has been on, on the data side of the business. So it's been really interesting to see how sort of the need for data, intelligence, and insights has evolved to really uh, help and grow the industry. IWSR certainly has a, a great platform in Europe. You're in kind of still business development form, certainly in the U.S. Do I have that wrong? Or uh, this is one of the things that you've yeah. embarked on since arriving at IWSR, right? Well, IWSR has been around for about 50 years. So we've been covering the U.S. for quite some time. Um, so we cover 160 countries and we're the only beverage alcohol specialist uh, in the world that just focuses on beverage alcohol data and intelligence. So it's a pretty unique view from that perspective. The way to think of us is we're almost the, the third party um, trusted source for the industry to collect data, um, value, volume data, forecasting. So companies can really understand market opportunities, benchmark competitive performance, and then see where markets are are growing and informing. So when I joined out of BSR, we've been in the U.S. for quite some time, but my role was to really look at how challenging the U.S. is and think about ways that we can better serve the, the U.S. market in terms of um, state-by-state, craft, 
e-commerce, and really a lot of the, the challenges that we've faced in the last several years. So it's been um, really interesting to develop, not only from a commercial view, but an intelligence view on how um, the, the data has really been important to, to growing the business. And you had the opportunity to represent and work with a lot of uh, the member companies at Discus. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So we we work with all major um, spirits companies, uh, as well as wine, beer, uh, RTV companies, packaging companies, um, anyone who really tracks the beverage alcohol industry. Um, so we provide for our clients, again, a view of really how categories are growing and some categories are growing. Um, where are emerging categories? How is pricing changing? So we obviously have seen premiumization, particularly uh, in the spirits industry for, for many, many years now. But as we look forward, um, premium brands in particular is where a lot of the growth is, especially when you look at um, additional kind of emerging markets around the world. So a lot of the beverage alcohol companies look to IWSR to help plan their strategy and their forecasting for the future. Ultimately, uh, and, and I had the opportunity to work for a couple of great uh, spirits and wine companies in, in my past, every company wants to be consumer-led, right? Mm -hmm. uh, consumer-led is the key to success. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, why is that so important? And uh, uh, without obviously confiding into, you know, one particular client company versus another, but what is the essence for a company to be consumer-led? Obviously, data and insights is a big critical ingredient of that, right? Yeah, and I think it goes back to, if you remember, uh, and I laughed this back at the Allied Demec days, you know, we looked at everything based on occasions, right? And what are yeah. the occasions when people choose particular brands? Um, and that's sort of evolved over time. And much of the, of the demand and the change that we're seeing, the disruption in the industry is consumer-led. Um, and it's not only the beverage alcohol industry. You've seen disruption, consumer-led disruption happen across uh, all CPG categories in terms of direct-to-consumer, whether it's you know, eyeglasses and, and mattresses, um, the demand for food delivery, um, I think the whole digital transformation. But a lot of the, the consumer-led elements are really kind of uh, taking a stronger hold in terms of what's happening in, in the Belvalk industry. Why that's important is, you know, if you go back to the occasion sets, right? So when people are choosing beverage alcohol, 20 years ago, one of the biggest changes is that it used to be there were less brands, so there were less choices, and you could count. Remember Kahlua back in the day? You know, we, we, knew, who yeah. the, we knew who the Kahlua consumer was. You know, they would carry that bottle with them for, you know, 30, 40 years to the grave. They wanted that white Russian. They did. Right. And you, you could count on your consumers. You had your, your vodka consumer, you had your whiskey consumer, and people didn't deviate very much. And so in, in the industry, really, we were always looking in the, in the spirits industry about who the next competitor in the category that we were playing in. So what's changed is consumers that are drinking across categories, not only in the spirits industry. So you had tequila drinkers drinking you, you know, whiskey, you had vodka drinkers um, drinking rum. Um, then you had a more fragmentation when it started, uh, people started drinking more wine, more beer, more RTDs. And you've seen that with, with seltzers in particular, um, which completely disrupted uh, the beverage alcohol industry and has been stealing share from, from all categories. So the consumer becomes really important when you try to anticipate what their need states are. So how do you figure out when your consumer is going to switch from a hard seltzer to uh, an old fashioned cocktail to a glass of wine? 
Absolutely. Tell us about, do you work with, does IWSR work with our distributor partners and our retail partners as well, or is it a mm-hmm. primary focus on, on the supplier side of the business? We work with all tiers of the industry uh, globally. And again, anyone who provides, uh, whether it's uh, packaging or liquid, um, the finance industry, so really everybody across the beverage alcohol spectrum, we're sort of that, that, that source for, for looking at all of those things. Great, great. And uh, over the last year, I've heard about gin, you know, that gin, gin uh, just may start picking up some momentum where the consumers are gravitating to gin. Could you elaborate a little bit on gin? Man, and, and we've how been the, talking about gin forever. For a while, <laughs> for a while, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, when, when Beefeater, when we were back at Allied de Bec, and then when oh, I was yeah. selling Bombay Sapphire at Bacardi, so... Um, and I, or I'm, wet. You remember beef eat or wet? I, oh my goodness. Which is yeah, absolutely. Celebrity marketing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so gin has been, I think, dying for its moment in the spotlight. So, you know, what we're seeing with gin is, is both imported and domestic, uh, more super premium gins are growing, but it's such a small uh, base. It's not going to help the entire category. So I think it's really important when you, when you look at any category and you start to dissect it, especially if you break down by leading brands and by key price points, you can really get a sense of the dynamics of a category. Um, so gin and I would say rum are, are those categories where more standard and below brands make up the bulk of the category. And that's not what's growing. Premium brands are growing. And so you have it, it's sort of weighted in a way where it's very hard to get a category of that size to sort of chug along when a majority of the volumes are not concentrated in the growth areas. Um, and you see that in beer too. That's sort of what's happening with the beer category for the last you know 10 plus years. Um, the good news is, I think, in, in the spirit side is that you have you know tequila, runaway train, um, U.S. whiskey, of course, a runaway train with growth. Um, Both of those are hot, hot, right? Tequila yes, and that, American yes. whiskey. Yeah, uh, that and vodka right now, of course, is always the last you know several decades has been the, the largest category by volume share in the U.S. Right, um, but what's interesting is that hard seltzers now by volume are bigger than vodka. Um, which is crazy if you think about a category that kind of came out of nowhere. So the vodka category is still the biggest, but whiskey as an entire category, so all whiskey, so Canadian, Irish, Scotch whiskey, U.S. whiskey, um, has sort of been just trailing behind vodka in terms of of size. And we predict over the next couple of years as the U.S. whiskey category grows by several million cases every year, that whiskey as a category is going to actually overtake vodka. So vodka's growing, but it's largely um, kind of clipping along at a, at a more steady pace where whiskey is just astronomical in terms of your, your growth. Yeah. Brandy, how, uh, of course, I would ask this question, uh, having the opportunity to lead discus, but how, how important from your perspective is the, is the political environment, the public policy, and the external affairs matters uh, with that are relevant to our industry. How important is that as it relates to uh, ultimately category trends and uh, just the marketplace, impacting the marketplace? In your time in the industry, have you seen that to be a critical element in determining uh, uh, the marketplace possibilities? 
Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the work that Discus does and a lot of the trade organizations overall, I mean, it, it's a highly, beverage alcohol is a very regulated um, industry in the U.S. And if you look at compared to other markets, we have a unique set of challenges. What makes it even more unique is that the states are sort of left uh, to kind of regulate um, individually. And that's where there's a lot of confusion, certainly when you're um, a, a company that's looking to launch a product in the U.S., you have to navigate sort of state by state laws. And that's that's often really challenging. Um, I think, you know, we obviously all know that the tariff issues that are going on, which are impacting the industry overall, um, not only with, with the whiskey tariffs, wine tariffs, of course, what's happening with, with the craft industry, but certainly right now, the, the big conversations are, are direct to consumer and a lot of the changes you're seeing with what's going on with COVID and, and really trying to have, help on-premise survive with to-go cocktails. And the state laws vary so much in some of these, I think, um, and certainly you guys know there's a lot of demand and it's all consumer going back to the consumer. It's consumer driven. So I think inevitably the big conversation now is, you know, with COVID, more people are ordering online and using e-commerce and demanding, you know, and don't understand why if I'm visiting a brewer in Colorado, can I not ship something home to myself in Massachusetts? And so um, I think more and more consumers are going to their, their state um, governments and sort of asking these questions to say, um, well, why can I do this with other products and not beverage alcohol? And it's, it's, it's a really interesting and dynamic time. Interesting. Uh, just, just last week, uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida was asked a question about in support of the craft distillers if he would entertain uh, uh, direct shipping or some innovative solutions to help the craft distillers of Florida. Certainly, that is uh, definitely something that Discus is going to have to certainly play a role in navigating, uh, certainly in full support of the three-tier system. But uh, certainly, the COVID-19 crisis, the pandemic, has really uh, it's forced the industry's hand to have to contend with all of these issues and do it in a way that supports our on-premise and uh, off-premise partners as well, but also to help drive consumer convenience, particularly when for many uh, distilleries, they've all been shut down. They've lost a great deal of revenue as a result of the tastings and the distilleries shut down. So, and certainly e-commerce in itself uh, is, uh, you know, a platform uh, that the industry is going to have to contend with and really seize the opportunity in uh, interesting uh, uh, dynamics for sure. Uh, for the craft distilling community, I mean, you've you've been in the industry long enough where you've seen the rise mm -hmm. uh, and it's really just a great, uh, genuine American success story. Uh, do you worry about the, uh, the dynamics related to the pandemic and what that ultimately could do to hurt their business. Uh, it's been a tough time for them, for sure. Yeah, and we we work with the ACSA um, every year on a craft spirits data project. So we've been tracking this really this industry for you know five almost going on five years right now. And I think that across you know breweries, distilleries, and wineries, it really depends on on who you talk to. And I would say it's the same for retailers or on premise operators. So you have this really dynamic, interesting time where it's very hard to say. Um, there's an absolute truth with anything because it, it depends on who you are. Um, if you were prepared and your business was doing well and you had the distribution um, and you had a business model that allowed you to be sustainable, then there are some 
producers that are actually doing quite well right now and were able to weather the storm. Um, on the other hand, if you um, didn't really have a distribution model, if you were heavily weighted on premise, for example, um, then there are challenges you had to overcome. And no it, doubt. It, it really has a lot to do with it. So I always try and I'm asked this question a lot. Um, it's not an absolute answer one way or the other. It depends on who you are. And some craft distillers, um, some retailers I've talked to, on-premise operators are actually doing really, really well. Um, and they've managed to pivot and um, kind of just turn their business in, in a way to make it work for them. And then there's others that have had more challenges. And it depends where you are geographically, because we know state by state um, with COVID, there's uh, openings, shutdowns, closures, different phases. Um, if you're a, a retailer or a craft distiller that relies heavily on tourism, um, that's obviously a challenge. If you're someone who is uh, in a major metro uh, that now doesn't have all of that, um, you know, office traffic, then that you know affects your business overall. So it, it really depends on where you are. And when I talk to people outside of the US, I always say the generalization of saying it's just one way is, is hard because I think everybody has having a different experience with COVID. I think so. And, and certainly the industry is going to have to evolve pretty dramatically. Uh, uh, there's going to have to be some accommodations because uh, you know, over the last 15 plus years, uh, spirits has really uh, captured the imagination of consumers. And it is shown in terms of uh, the market share of distilled spirits has gained over the last 15 plus years. And I think uh, it's going to be an incumbent upon all of us within the industry to keep an open mind and to help uh, our industry partners, particularly those that have been an impacted greatly like our on-premise or our bars and taverns and restaurants. Those craft distillers, you know, eight states have adopted uh, intrastate direct shipping and it's been an economic lifeline for them. You've seen platforms like Drizzly and Minibar and uh, LibDib that have been able to thrive all within the three-tier system as well. So I think uh, I think the industry is going to have to roll up our sleeves and really navigate through all of this together. Uh, I got I I got a question for you. Uh, depending on who you talk to, brand building starts in the on premise, mm -hmm. but if you talk to somebody else, brand building starts in the off premise. And I think there's probably an element of truth to both. Mm. Certainly, with the impact on the on premise with COVID, with many of the bars and restaurants shut down. How does the industry, how do brand builders navigate that, right? I believe brand building can uh, happen certainly the on and off premise, but I'd love to get your insights in what should brand builders do in this environment? So I'm going to throw a curveball back at you and say, what, what, what about if I said that I think brand building really happens uh, online? Right. So digitally. So check that out. Yep. Here we go. So there's a slide that I use at a lot of conferences. And I did this slide, gosh, like four years ago. And everyone always finds it really relevant and, and particularly now. And it, it talked about the sort of this premise quadrant, right? And how we've operated in the industry for decades and decades in terms of always looking at on and off premise, right? In this little quadrant. So every brand goes to market the same way. You sort of program your distributors, you 
you'd sample brands on premise, you do your shelf sets and your point of sale and you just sort of, that's how you go to market. And we've done that for so long. Um, E-commerce has sort of come along and online and just in general social media. And that really challenged and changed, um, I think, and, and took a lot of people in the industry off, off guard a little bit to sort of how do you, how do you communicate? How do you do it in an LDA compliant way? How do you uh, maintain authenticity when there's more and more access to information? Consumers, there's price transparency. Um, there's more and more peer-related reviews, and there's influencers. So it really has been driving sort of this, this e-premise environment has been driving a lot of exposure to brands and consumer choice. Um, and then, of course, you've had this growth in craft, which we call sort of product premise, which again is on-site distillery, brewery, and winery sales, which have grown um, significantly over the last 10 years. And that's driven a lot by experience, right? So instead of going to a crowded, maybe sports bar, you might choose to go to a local brewery or distillery that has, you know, a food truck, a band, you can bring your dog, get a t-shirt. Social distance and all of the above, right? Even before social distancing, it was about experience. And um, the the whole psychology of of experiences, I was listening to something recently where um, there was sort of a social psychology on things versus experiences and what resonates with people longer. And they say that always having an experience, even if it happens to be a bad experience to some degree, having that experience is something that you can always reflect back on. It lives in your memory longer than than a a thing, an inanimate object that you may buy and then sort of be done with. So experiences um, and the desire for experience has, has been big across, you know, I think just a general societal movement. So when you start looking at beverage alcohol from, you know, a 10,000 foot view, you have to look at what are all of the other changes that are sort of happening in the world in terms of generational shifts, um, economic shifts, how people buy, how they shop, how they experience brands. And you have to, of course, look at our industry is not immune to any of this, right? It's going to have an effect. And so to sort of say, well, what do I do about on and off premise? Yes, it's an important part of, of how we build um, and sell and market beverage alcohol brands. But ultimately, you have to look at what is the, the larger sort of um, societal view. And, and I would say online and digital in particular is how most people experience brands. And so that strategy that interaction is pretty critical. And I think more and more companies, distributors, um, suppliers, retailers are recognizing um, that, that we as a country, the U.S., is, is far behind other, other countries in terms of our um, adaptation of, of digital overall, especially for BevElk. And a lot of that has to do with sort of the complex laws around this, where in other markets, you can go direct to consumer, no problem. Um, and I think a lot of people, too, when we do consumer work, there's still a lot of people who don't under, know that you can buy alcohol online, right? And COVID has accelerated that awareness. Um, so I think we're at this really pivotal pivotal changing point right now where um, across all tiers, people are recognizing brand building and interacting with consumers online is really going to be critical to, to sort of that experience and, and awareness. From your experience, uh, pre-COVID, uh, were some of uh, the major suppliers well ahead of uh, looking at brand building from an e-commerce perspective. Certainly, I think everybody's realizing now for those that may have been behind the eight ball on that, that they've got to catch up to do that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think everybody, you know, and I look back again, you know, 15, 20 years ago when when we used to do media buys, right? When when I think back to my ally days and we look at trade marketing and, and when you work with brand teams and you do media buys. And at the time it was all, you know, television, 
just people still watch TV and you had to get a few commercials and you listen to the, you know, so when you looked at weighted media buys, there were millions of dollars sort of in TV and print and billboards and very traditional media. And even when um, online started happening and people were trying to quantify, like, what's the cost of a click and a banner ad? And then, of course, that evolved. And now everything we do is on a little device. Everything. Sure. Right. So how do you interact with a brand for the first time? So think about all the time and money and effort you spend on shelf sets and POS and things where you're touching and feeling. And listen, this isn't going to go away. So Amazon did not destroy the bookstore. Because remember when Amazon started, everyone said, oh, no one's going to shelves anymore. That didn't happen. However, there's a convenience factor and there's an element um, where there's going to have to be both. And so you have to think about if someone is only going to hear about my brand, um, learn about my brand um, through a little tiny screen, how do I best present that that brand? And it's very different than how you present a brand in traditional like on or off premise. So I think that shift is really important. And, and a lot of suppliers have been working on this for, for many years in terms of trying to understand how do I reach the consumers the right way. Um, and there's an authenticity factor overall, but I would say the e-commerce part of it is, yes, uh, a lot of people are sort of scrambling, especially small or mid-sized, um, you know, brand owners or, that really hadn't put the time and investment into figuring e-commerce out are really sort of looking to figure out how, how do I get the right distribution to be three-tier compliant? Um, how do I figure out and navigate where availability is? Um, remember, when we talk about e-commerce, there's these nuances state by state. So um, penetration of some of these marketplaces may only be concentrated in key urban areas. So if you're someone who lives out in Montana and there's no Whole Foods or Amazon um, that can deliver to you because they don't have liquor licenses there because it's a control state, or if there's no Drizzly in Montana or there's no... So you have to look at... There's still going to be people in key areas of the country that are going to still walk into stores. So that's very important. So I think it's it's critical for brand owners to understand where where is my distribution footprint? Um, who are my target consumers? Where do they live? And then what are the e-commerce channels that are available to them, whether it's a, it's a Walmart or an Amazon or an ind- independent retailer, um, where I can best sort of reach that consumer? Because it's not a, a one-size-fits-all just given the laws in the U.S. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to do a quick fire round, a uh, couple of questions for Let's you. Let's go. And I know you've done a lot of research on this. Okay. Uh, I think we're 85 days from election day as we're taping this podcast, right? So November 3rd, uh, there's going to be big implications for the country. Either way you go, not to get into the partisan politics, right? But cannabis and cannabis policy could really be impacted one one way or the other as a result of the November 3rd election. Is cannabis a complement or a competitor to the distilled spirits industry? Um, I would say early on, everyone was a little bit nervous that they thought somehow everybody that is drinking with recreational cannabis was going to switch over. And I think it's very clear that you see, you know, uh, cannabis has always been uh, around. Uh, It's not like it just sort of came now legal. So so the same sort of behaviors that people had prior um, are there. I think the rise in, in CBD and recreational cannabis, I look at it more as most of those products, the way they're marketed, it has to do with um, with mood. You know, I can't sleep. I have anxiety. So it's sort of fixing a more health-related. Um, I have aches. I have pains. So to me, it's more 
similar to pharmaceutical and vitamin industries because it's more of a health and wellness thing in terms of how a lot of those products are being marketed is, is really um, is, is, is medicine, right? Which is very different than, than beverage alcohol. Um, the work that, that we've done with, with BDS is, is a partner of ours and also just looking at what's going on with Canada is that there isn't a huge um, impact overall and that most people who are kind of dualist, um, they pick, goes back to occasion. You're going out for a romantic dinner, Italian dinner for an anniversary with, you know, a spouse. Um, that's not an environment that you're going to be using cannabis, right? So certain occasions where cannabis um, may work and they tend to be more relaxation, individual kind of creative occasions, um, you may substitute, but it's never going to be really a direct, I think, competitor. Um, what we do see though is, you know, the CBD beverages, which are sort of growing with frequency and even globally you're seeing more and more of this um i think everyone was looking to canada of course with that the sort of the whole federal legalization of that to see if that had a big impact but people we've talked to there have said it's been a bit of a, a slow kind of clunky start and there's still just a lot of regulatory issues um a lot of issues with uh, consumer awareness and just trying to figure out how does this fit into my lifestyle got it it's gonna be interesting it's gonna be interesting to watch if you recall, just a, uh, I think it was about a, a year and a half ago, we did a survey in the three states where cannabis had been legalized uh, mm -hmm. the longest. I think it was Washington State, Oregon, and maybe Colorado. Colorado, that's right. Yeah, very good, Brandy. Uh, and we saw no impact to uh, market access or consumption, certainly trends on distilled spirits. Mm -hmm. Okay. Put COVID aside because we're all exhausted by it and all that type of stuff. What's the next big, what's the next big trend? Uh, not technology and all that in terms of category trend. Uh, certainly you did register that American whiskey is still going to mm. uh, fly off the shelves and tequilas as strong as ever. Uh, mm. What's going to surprise us over the next couple of years? Anything? So I think, well, I know you want to talk spirits, but I'll say, I'll talk a little bit bigger, but then I'll bring it back to spirits. So I think sure. RTD, RTD, so ready RTD. to, okay, yep. so premiumization. So the RTD category typically has been sort of this fad based category. Um, it, it's kind of a catch all, right? But we're seeing globally RTDs as a category is one of the only categories across all beverage alcohol that's kind of been consistently growing um, year over year. And this has to do with convenience. It has to do with younger generations, single serve, portability, and also the premiumization. So anytime you have a category that starts to premiumize um, and starts to pick up on key sort of social um, uh, cues, whether it's health and wellness, whether it's, you know, low calorie, low sugar, antioxidants, all these kind of convergence of trends we're seeing, RTDs has been sort of this catch-all and the growth in seltzers has now spawned canned cocktails. There are there's so much innovation happening globally and in the U.S. with canned cocktails and growth in in this sector, and it's really interesting to watch because um, I think there's a big demand for again this convenience, and it's been accelerated by you know a COVID environment. But you you can see it's been happening for the last three years. We certainly have seen a spike, and we are pretty bullish in the next couple of years on the future. Really, that ready to drink category, whether it's wine based, spirit based, or malt based. Yeah, and all to some degree, White Claw. White Claw is, uh, you know, mm -hmm. big, certainly a big trendsetter in that regard, right? Yeah, I mean, if you look at last year, and I and I think everyone was shocked by this, is because 
going back to what I said, people are drinking across categories, right? So I remember talking to, you know, when you talk to the beer industry and everyone sort of originally said, oh, well, seltzers are, are malt-based, so they fit in the beer industry. We've always sort of tracked them, you know, separate from beer, wine, or spirits. And when you, when you put it into perspective and when we talk to our spirits clients, and last year we did a, a report on, on seltzers and we said, hey, listen, seltzers are bigger than vodka in the U.S. And that just, in perspective, people say, oh, wow, this, this is pretty significant. Pretty dramatic. Um, it's still... It's still growing, um, and we see that 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 rate growing. Um, overall, I think from just looking at spirits, the whiskey category, the U.S. whiskey category, is really interesting. Um, it's it's becoming more and more fragmented with innovation, contemporary brands. You see um, American single malts. A lot of this driven by craft distillers, and more and more there's opportunities that you see across the board where there are are new kind of American whiskeys that are coming out and the a consumer appetite for discovery. So I think that the the U.S. whiskey category will continue to to really grow and you'll see more and more um, innovation in brands. Very good. And thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So if you could pick one place at this very moment, no COVID, no pandemic, you don't have to worry. If you could pick one place to go to have a cocktail on a early evening, watching the sunset, where would that be? Oh gosh, like realistically, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty lucky um, where I am in Rhode Island. And also it, when we go to Maine, I get sunsets on both. So I get sunsets over the water and sunsets over the mountains. Sure. So they're both pretty, pretty spectacular. So um, that's something that I've been taking a lot of time to enjoy. So I'd have to say I grew up in the Seattle area. So I was around a lot of mountains. And so for me, just uh, I think a mountain setting is, is probably tops. Mount Rainier, that's beautiful, right? Yeah, so. yeah, the mountains. I think I'm a, I'm a mountain girl, so I think I'd have to say probably the mountains. Maine's not a, Maine's not a bad place for sure. It's awesome. I like that. Okay, uh, dead or alive, if you could have a cocktail with anyone famous, yep. uh, anyone famous uh, that we would all be aware of, who would that person be? Julia Child. Uh, Check out, very fun. Gin, gin martini. So I'm, I'm a martini drinker, like a classic martini drinker. And Julia Child was known for an upside down martini. So she would do one parts gin and five parts vermouth. So she went heavy on the vermouth. Um, and you know what? I have always been a fan of vermouth. Vermouth gets such a bad rap. Um, the, the whole martini era of the 1990s and, and early 2000s destroyed vermouth and people weren't using it. But a, a real classic gin martini with, with vermouth is just a perfectly balanced cocktail. That's how it was invented. Um, and I take Julia's uh, version to heart because it is, it is really good. So I think um, she, she was awesome. I, I would love to sit with her and uh, have a drink for sure. Now, would you take her to dinner and have that cocktail uh, with Julia Child or would you want her to make dinner, right? Because that's what she was awesome at, right? Yeah, no, you know what I would probably do? I Just, to, just because, you know, fear always pushes you to be better. I'd probably offer to cook for her. Check I would that out. I would give her upside down martini and then I'd say, watch me yeah. like the bone of chicken and, and tell me how ridiculous I am. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that would be pretty fun to, to cook for a chef. I feel like they always have to cook for other people. So it'd be really fun to, to actually cook for somebody else. And I'm a pretty good cook. I've definitely been honing my skills in this COVID environment. So no doubt about it. Uh, well, great fun. And Brandy, on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council, of the United States. A big toast to you and thank, thank you for you. spending time with us 
on the podcast. You've given us great insights to really reflect on and think about. So thank you very much. Cheers to you and cheers to IWSR as well. Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Be safe. The Spirited Advocate Podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.